2: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic
3: at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, how do you make a song you didn't write your own? What are the best cover songs of all time?
2: We'll give our choices, we'll hear our listeners' picks, and we'll review three new cover albums. Brian Ferry's, Patti Smith's, and a tribute to Johnny Mitchell.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions. They sat together in the park As the evening
1: sky drew dark She looked at him and he felt a spark Tingle to his bones Just then he felt alone And wished that he'd gone straight? Watch out for a simple twist of fate
0: Call. The way the camera follows us in slow-mo The way we look to us all. oh yeah These are the days of miracle and wonder. Don't cry baby, don't cry, don't
1: cry Good time Mary and a fortune hunter All dressed up to follow the drums Mary in a feather hula hoop Miss Martin with a rose on her big Game
2: that is a montage of cover songs by artists uh, performing other artists' material. We heard uh, Brian Ferry doing A Simple Twist of Faith by Bob Dylan, Patti Smith doing The Boy in the Bubble by Paul Simon, and Caetano Veloso doing Dreamland by Joni Mitchell. We're going to review those new cover records from Brian Ferry and Patti Smith and the tribute to Joni Mitchell later in the show. But uh, this is our introduction to what makes a great cover. A cover is an artist performing a song written
3: by another artist, trying to make it his or her own. A lot of people may not realize, Jim, that a lot of the best songs and a lot of the most popular songs of the last few decades in pop music history have been cover versions uh a lot of people may not realize that otis redding actually wrote respect yeah before aretha franklin got to it and made it her own claimed it forever uh, absolutely bob dylan writes a, a fantastic song called all along the watchtower nobody really remembers the dylan version because right. jimi hendrix completely recontextualized the song to the point where Dylan himself was performing the song more like Hendrix than his original version of the song. You got it. You had uh, Whitney Houston doing I Will Always Love You, one of the biggest selling pop hits of all time. You know who got the songwriting royalties on that song? Not Whitney Houston, but Dolly Parton. And then
2: hers was better,
3: I'll say. <laughs> and then uh, most recently, Lady Marmalade, a lot of the kids who bought that record by uh, Christina Aguilera, Pink, Maya, and Missy Elliott, might have thought one of those gals wrote the song No, 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 <laughs> right, that was right, a right. big hit for LaBelle in the 70s An even bigger hit for those four singers in the, in the 2000s I just love
2: covers And I have since I was in my early 20s I was in a cover band from New Jersey Which sounds like a punchline to a bad joke <laughs> But we, we actually have a minor... Footnote to a footnote in rock history. We toured with Wire, who had reformed in 1987 after breaking up in 1980, wouldn't play any of their old material. So they hired me and my friends from New Jersey. We would open for them as they toured America, playing all of their first album in order in its entirety. <laughs> you know, Wire always said to us, we can't play that material with conviction anymore. We're 10 years past it. But to you guys, you love this music and you're passionate about it. So I think a key ingredient in an artist claiming another artist's song as his or her own is the passion they bring to it. There can come a point where a song means more to you as a performer than it did to the person who wrote it.
3: Yeah, I think it's a lost art. I mean, uh, or at least it's not an appreciated one anymore. A lot of people think, well, it's got to be about the stuff that's coming from your soul. That's the only thing that you can sing with any truth. But the art of interpretive singing, I think it's been a key part of pop music for more than a century. Well, easily. Tony Bennett
2: and Frank Sinatra sure.
3: and all these greats. And I think there's two key reasons, Jim, for doing it. A cover. One is to shine a light on a songwriter who maybe didn't get his or her Mm due in their time. And you saw that to an extent with uh, those early Rolling Stones and Beatles records where they were shining the light on some of the blues and R&B performers of earlier times and really bringing them to a level of popularity that they never would have enjoyed on their own. And the second reason is to take a song and completely remake it. Reinvent it. Make it an even better song than it might have been in its original version. And it must be said there are more lousy
2: covers by far than great covers. Because you know we have all sat through the abysmal wedding band <laughs> playing celebrate or on and on and on and on so it really takes something special we're going to try to illuminate those things that make a cover special in this show we're going to hear some listeners picks but first greg we're going to give a few of our picks uh when we start a show like this we always do the traditional sound opinions coin to us to see which of us gets to go first on one side is the great rock critic peter goralnik uh, on the other is the great rock critic lester bangs matt finger spiegel our producers here he's got the quarter and it goes to Cot. Yes. Way to Where? go, Matt. That 20 I knew that would go a long I got to look and see if that's a double-sided <laughs> quarter. That's I'm sure, because
3: it's always rigged. $20 buys you a lot of favors. What do you got, Mr. Cot? Mr. Deary Goddess, I'm going to start off with a uh, song that was uh, originally recorded in the 60s and written by one Jimmy Webb, one of the great uh, pop songwriters of all time. Jimmy Webb wasn't much of a singer. And wasn't a particularly great performer, but he was a great songwriter. One of the songs he wrote, uh, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, was a huge hit for uh, Glenn Campbell mm-hmm. in, in the late 60s. Glenn Campbell had a top ten hit with it. It put Glenn Campbell on the map in many ways. I'm
2: still trying to figure out why he left his cake in the rain, too, in MacArthur <laughs> Park, but whatever.
3: Here's the original version of the song. Glenn Campbell probably did the most popular version of it, and here's a little taste of that. By the time
1: I get to Phoenix... She'll be rising She'll
3: find the note I left hanging on her door Alright, so by the time I get to Phoenix from Glen Campbell, big hit, I like the song Nice Enough Song, but then when this guy came along, he owned the song. When he performed it, he owned it. And I have that, no idea where you're going. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> and unfortunately, we don't have enough time in the show to play all 19 minutes <laughs> of this cover version of the track. But Isaac Hayes so loved this song. Isaac Hayes? That so de- he devoted 19 minutes to it. Isaac Hayes, uh, a lot of people may re- remember him best for uh, the song Shaft, mm-hmm. uh, one of the classic uh, soundtrack themes for one of the classic black exploitation movies of the 70s. Before that, uh, he was uh, one of the key songwriters at the Stax label in Memphis. Uh, he and David Porter co-wrote tons of hit songs for artists like Otis Redding and Sam and Dave in the Stax era in the 60s. When Isaac Hayes broke out on his own, his specialty was not so much the songs that he wrote, but covering other people's songs. And he just fell in love with this uh, Jimmy Webb song and started doing these kind of long versions of it with his band, sort of workshop style, working out these extended versions of this song and wrapping an introduction to it. And he's been
0: going down the highway.
3: I guess it was around...
0: 3.30 in the morning, he could hardly see the road with tears in his eyes. That's right, he was crying. It were meeting on his chin. He could barely see the sign read on the side of the road, the next town, 125 miles away. And these very words came into his mind. said, by the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be right.
3: He gave the whole backstory of this guy. Why was he leaving this woman? Why was he... He left her a note and he left her in the middle of the night. That's basically what the song's about.
2: I would kill to hear what Glenn Campbell had to say about Isaac Hayes' version.
3: Well, I've talked to Jimmy Webb about it and he was blown away by it because Isaac Hayes got inside the minds of the characters in the song. The main character in the song. And then he built it up and orchestrated it and and it turned into a cornerstone on an album which nobody at the time of its release really thought it was going to sell a whole lot. A hot buttered soul that was Mm. Debut solo release from Isaac Hayes. It only had four songs on it. Obviously, when the songs are like 19 minutes long, you can only put so many songs on the side of an album. It turned out to be a huge hit and established Isaac Hayes as a great interpretive singer in his own right. This was the birth of the shaven-headed Black Moses of R&B. <laughs> and uh, here he was, Isaac Hayes, hot buttered soul, with this incredible reinterpretation of "By the Time I Get to Phoenix" on Sound Opinions. Oh, my, 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 my. Oh ba That's a little bit of the 19-minute version of By the Time I Get to Phoenix by Isaac Hayes. Uh, he just takes that uh, Jimmy Webb song, originally done by Glenn Campbell, and, and makes it his own. Uh, Jim, uh, what's your choice for uh, one of the best covers of all time?
2: Well, it'd be hard to top that, just out of sheer left-fieldness, uh, <laughs> Greg. But I'm going to go with a classic, the greatest covers of all time, in my opinion. Take a song, add something really unique bring a particular passion to it and and the artist claims it now as their song. Dylan's going to come up a lot throughout this conversation and with good reason because Dylan's written so many great songs. But I'm talking about Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds. A couple of things about this cover. I don't think The Birds knew what the song was about because when Dylan was singing the song, I think he was goofing or or being typically sarcastic and sneering about a glitzy performer or would-be messiah type uh, trying to attract the masses. Listen to the snarl and the sneer and the sarcasm in Dylan's version.
0: Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me jingle
2: jangle morning I come following you all right so Dylan is is is, is uh, sneering as I said but I think the birds uh pay no attention to that you know mm-hmm. they they bring those gorgeous three-part harmonies And the words aren't really key to them. What this song is all about is the sound. And I think even Dylan would have to grant that the simple acoustic and vocal pairing with which he approached the song uh, is topped by this timeless uh, creation that the birds... I mean, here is the birth of power pop. Here is the birth of folk rock. Here is the birth of that jangly 80s guitar rock sound that, you know, R.E.M. would take to heights... What an amazing sound. That 12 string Rickenbacker that Roger McGuinn is playing, those three part harmonies of Crosby, McGuinn, and Clark, you know, the simple rhythm, it's got this drive, this power, this sound. It's timeless, it's absolutely pure and perfect. It's as good as rock and roll gets. 1965 cover of Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, one of my choices for greatest cover song of all time. Greg, as you know, though, we believe that everybody is a critic here on Sound Opinions, so we wanted to get some listener feedback, some choices from the listeners about greatest covers. We're going to be hearing from them throughout the show.
3: Let's go to Ian. Ian, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi, guys. So, we're doing the best cover songs of all time, and you've got a nomination, right, Ian?
4: Yeah, I wanted to suggest the Bauhaus version of Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie. Ah.
3: Yeah. Interesting. Why?
2: What is it about that uh, that version of that song that speaks to you?
4: Well, it's such a famous song, and yet I was probably listening to the Bauhaus version for ten years before I realized that there was this David Bowie (laughs) version (laughs) floating around out there. Uh I do like it better. I find that it's it's fuller, it's heavier, it's kind of more rock and roll. Next to it, the Bowie version sounds kind of light and un. But I understand that Bowie was influential in the world, and I'm not putting him down. <laughs> but I really like the Bauhaus version. I Even also... Bowie's props.
2: All right, let's yeah. hear a little of this Bauhaus version of uh, Ziggy Stardust. Now
0: Ziggy played guitar Jamming good with Whit and and it And the spiders from Mars He played it left hand But made it too far Became the special man
3: a pretty faithful uh, version of the Bowie original. Although I have to say in listening to that, Peter Murphy sounds way creepier than uh, Bowie in some (laughs) ways. I mean, he does sound like the man who fell to earth, you know?
4: (laughs) I also think that the timing of it is really interesting, the way that, that that song in about 1982 or so, the Bauhaus version, is kind of straddling between the punk and goth of the late 70s and getting towards a more melodic power pop post punk thing that happens mm-hmm. you know by the end of the 80s so the song itself kind of for me captures that turn from from punk to power pop
3: Thanks, Ian. Good choice. Thanks a lot, guys. Let's go to Scott in Chicago. Scott, we are talking about the greatest covers of all time. What's your uh, choice?
4: My choice, by far, has to be uh, Johnny Cash's version of Personal Jesus from the uh, American Four album.
2: Wow, so you said Johnny Cash, and I instantly thought he was going to go for Hurt, the Nine Inch Nails song. <laughs> but Personal Jesus, the Depeche Mode song, why?
4: Yeah, Hurt did get a lot of attention, and Hurt's a great song, but I think it's almost so great that it's it's hard to mess it up. Like. In my opinion, Boyzone could do a great cover of "Hurt," but <laughs> "Personal Jesus" by Depeche Mode. Uh, even though I'm a Depeche Mode fan, like they sing every song with so much emotional intensity, and what Cash does with it instead, and he drops out a lot of that emotion. And he makes it like really kind of cold, rather, and and like almost a monotone it's it's almost more uh, malevolent I, it's a really interesting way to approach a song and then mm-hmm. with the the piano and the, the guitar it's a lot more sparse and i just i think it's one of the few covers that actually is both faithfully original but really improves upon it. your own personal jesus
1: someone to hear your prayers someone who cares feeling unknown and you're all alone flesh and bones by the
3: telephone lift up the receiver i'll make you a believer It reminds me again of how ill Cash was in those last few recordings that he was doing, and yet there's still a real dignity there. And and the song obviously was speaking to him in a way that maybe it didn't speak to David Gahan of Depeche Mode when he sang it. Oh,
2: I think anybody covering Depeche Mode is an improvement over Depeche Mode. mode (laughs) Mode. (laughs) Thanks for a good suggestion. Absolutely. Reach out
3: and touch things. If you have any comments about anything discussed on this show, give us a call at 1-888-859-1800 or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org.
2: Greg, uh, we got a lot of email from listeners who chose Alleluia. Leonard Cohen wrote the original song. Most of them were referring to the Jeff Buckley cover of Alleluia. Both you and I agree, I think, that John Cale did the better cover of Alleluia. "Hallelujah." Alleluia.
1: Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah,
2: we'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more choices for our best cover songs of all time plus more listener picks Her beauty and the moonlight
1: through you. she tied you Chair, she broke your throne, she cut your hair, and from your I've walked this floor I used to live alone Before I knew you I've seen your flag On the marble arch But love is not a victory march. It's a cold And it's a broken
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. No, your ears aren't deceiving you. Britney Spears didn't lose several octaves on her voice. That's actually Richard Thompson doing Oops, I Did It Again, a pretty hilarious uh, version. And actually, wow. he gets down to, uh, he points out how dark some of those lyrics are by sl- uh, slowing it down a oh, little yeah, bit. Oh, yeah, I don't really, know It's actually sure. kind of an ominous sounding song in the version that he does of it. What is your next pick, Greg, for a timeless cover? Well, I'm going to go back to uh, an obscure song in its original version. Uh, a song that was originally done by a uh, reggae band, a UK reggae band, led by one Eddie Grant. People may know the name Eddie Grant Electric for one Avenue. reason. Yes. Yeah. Had a big hit with Electric Avenue. But before he went out as a solo artist, he was in a band called The Equals, which had a number of minor hits. One of the songs that they performed was a song called Police on my back. It really didn't go anywhere. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge hit outside of the UK. But the members of the Clash, huge reggae fans, heard this song, loved it, and made it absolutely their own. Let's hear a little bit of uh, the original version by the Equals, uh, Eddie Grant's version. Let's hear that first.
0: Real, I'm on my back they were shooting police on my back and the victim really won't come back i've been running monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday sunday running down the railway track
3: now you can hear the content of this song is pretty dire i mean here's a kid running from the cops and he doesn't even know what he's done why am i running i'm not even yeah. sure why i'm running but i just i know i'm in trouble and i got to get away. Uh, the Clash heard the song. Obviously, they empath- empathized with this poor kid. <laughs> and, they, and they bring out the desperation of the song to the point where I don't think you can even hear the original anymore and not think that The Clash's version just completely obliterates it. Yeah, for sure. For one thing, Mick Jones heard that sort of hint of a uh, police siren at the start of the song and just ramped it up with his guitar sound at the start of this song. And then when he's, uh, you know, the desperation he brings uh, when he sings the words, What have I done? just blows away the original version. So here's The Clash doing Eddie Grant's Police on My Back on Sound Opinions. ¶¶ The sign of a good cover, Jim, is when uh, a lot of the fans of the band think that the band wrote the song. Yeah. I and mean, a lot of people, to this day, still think The Clash and Mick Jones wrote Police on My Back. Absolutely. They didn't, but they made it their own. No, you're right. They claim that forever. I'm going to
2: say the same is true of my next song, although it's even more of a stretch, because the original is phenomenal. 8 Miles High was written by Roger McGuinn of the Birds. They were my first pick covering Dylan. He wrote this song about a 1965 airplane trip on which Gene Clark had a complete freak out. He left the band because he hated to fly. Eight
0: miles high, and when
2: It's about that, eight miles high, and when you touch down, you'll find that it's stranger than known. But McGuinn was also taking psychedelic drugs at the time, and in addition to going to the white light, you know, and, and visiting a spiritual, wonderful place, you can have a bad trip. And that element is in the song as well. Along with Crosby's musical innovations, he was listening to Ravi Shankar's sitar and John Coltrane's free jazz, and he wanted to bring that element into the Bird's guitars. You can hear a little hint of that, but in order to get the full thing that he was going for, I think... I think you have to go to a superior 1984 single released by Who's Du from Minneapolis, right? They were a great covers band. They had covered Donovan's Sunshine Superman early in their career. They uh, later claimed the Mary Tyler Moore theme as their <laughs> own, a little homage to the Twin Cities. Yep. But boy, with this song, they went somewhere completely different. The rhythm is furious. That ominous, throbbing bass line is upped in its intensity. The guitars really capture the wildest free jazz elements that Crosby was hinting at. And Bob Mould's vocal performance, it must be said, is one of the greatest in rock history. He begins by singing, screaming, shouting the song fairly straightly, but in the middle, the intensity of this emotional experience, whether it's a plane that's going down, or a trip <laughs> that's taking him to a very bad place, or just the sheer fury and anger of the Thatcher-Reagan era in the mid-80s, he explodes. He, he gets into a sort of wordless frenzy, hysteria, he's sputtering, he's spitting, he's, he's just, he loses it. And it's a great, great performance that I think brings this song completely somewhere new, and it makes it hoosker doos. Even if you've never heard this This is the definitive eight miles high.
3: Makes me want to bang my head. Husker Du's 8 Miles High. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Uh, let's go to some callers now, Jim, see what their choices are for the best cover songs of all time.
2: Let's talk to Jim in Round Lake, Illinois. Uh, Jim, you got a cover pick for us?
3: Sure do. I you know, I saw the uh, thread on the wonderful uh, Sound Opinions message board. First thought in my head was Slayer's cover of Indigata De Vita.
2: What about that tune uh, speaks to you?
3: Well, you know, there's so many great things about it. It was first real thrash song to be uh, in a big Hollywood movie. Which film was it in? It was in *Lesson Zero. Oh, okay. I was thinking about it, and then I figure any
4: way we can get Slayer out to the masses, even yeah. if it's on a cover of an old hippie tune.
3: About the, uh, the drum solo, too. So they, they, they cut down the Iron Butterfly version by about 15 minutes, I think. Well, you know, the Iron Butterfly version it has its good points, but, you know, it really does overstay its welcome, as a critic <laughs> might say.
2: No, it's absolutely true, and there's no reason ever for drums to be a solo instrument. You know, not when Slayer delivers the way they do in this song, and in general, on every song.
3: You can't beat it, and it's over, and, you know... Three minutes and, I don't know, 20 seconds, something like that.
2: Absolutely. Stick your head in the blender.
3: That's it, man. That's all you need.
2: (laughs) Thanks for uh, giving us a good excuse to indulge ourselves, Jim.
3: My pleasure, gentlemen.
2: Let's talk to Christine in California. Christine,
5: where are you calling from? Westlake Village.
2: Excellent. What's your cover choice?
5: I like the Sunday's version of Wild Horses by Rolling Stones.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sundays, Forgotten Band, I think first ever mentioned on Sound Opinions,
3: Greg. Really? They were a good band. Okay, so how did you come across this cover?
5: Actually, it's just by the album, and I didn't even know it was a cover. I mean, they were my first introduction to the song, sadly.
2: That's excellent. We're getting a couple of callers who are saying that. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I wonder, Greg, does it, does it change the way you hear a cover if it's your introduction when an artist is
3: covering it, or, or if you knew the song before? I think it has to. Yeah.
5: I think it does, too.
3: So, do you prefer the Sundays version to the Stones version?
5: I do, Asha. I hope it's not heresy, but I, I think it's just—it's such a gorgeous ballad, and it's so well suited for, you know, the female voice. And she has, you know, she has an angelic voice.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: when Harriet Wheeler is singing There's a Sincerity There with Jagger. You know, yeah. when, when he's singing Wild Horses Couldn't Drag Me Away, nothing he sings can you ever I, fully believe. <laughs> You're still suspecting. It's a, yeah, well, blind. he's
3: affecting that southern drawl, and, you know, he's pretending he's a southern guy, singing it to a girl he can't live without, and you go, right. well, there's two things untrue about that right away, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs> Whereas with Harriet Wheeler, you could say, you know, she probably had her heart crushed at one point, yeah. you know, and yeah. is singing this very poignant song about it. Thank you for uh, bringing that up, Christine. I completely... Forgot that they had recovered that song. That's a pretty cool version of it.
5: Yeah, everyone should remember that song.: <laughs> I got a letter from the government
0: The other day, I opened and read it it said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Here' you me giving a damn. I said never. Here's a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with, it, but just that very minute it occurred to me the suckers had authority.:
3: What do you got, Mr. Cot? Flat out, it's a masterpiece. 1988, (laughs) it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. That is Public Enemy, Black Steel, In the Hour of Chaos, one of many great tracks on that fantastic hip-hop release. Basically, Chuck D at his all-time best. I mean, here he's talking about why would a black man want to go fight in a war overseas, in a war that he doesn't believe in, Mm. in a country that he doesn't believe in and here we are twenty years later talking about very much the same kind of issues uh... it's it's amazing how things how little things change in what chuck d was talking about in that song Great song, you know, incendiary song, great version of that song, but I think there's a a cover version of that song out there that may be even better, at least in my mind, for what it did. It reinterpreted the song, and it made it this artist's own. I'm talking about the artist known as Tricky Mm. uh, from from Britain. Up until the mid-'90s, I don't think uh, the U.K. really had a credible hip-hop scene. They really didn't have a response to hip-hop that was very much in England's voice. Adrian Thaws, a.k.a. Tricky, former member of Massive Attack, I think found that voice in covering Chuck D. He's described Chuck D. as his Shakespeare. This was his light, his shining light, his guiding light in creating the sound out of Bristol, England, which became known as trip-hop. We were talking about that a few weeks
2: ago when we played the Portishead song.
3: Yes, absolutely. Tricky, one of the architects of that sound, and in the mid-'90s, this album, Max and Quay, came out and I think provided that credible U.K. response to what was going on in American hip-hop. Tricky acknowledged that debt by covering Public Enemies' Black Steel and and reinventing it. Chuck D. was talking about this far-off war, I think Tricky puts that war right at home, right on the street, right in your head. That war is going on right now, and this record sounds like this chaos, this Mm -hmm. claustrophobia, this war is going on in his head right now. The other touch that I love about this record is Martina topley Bird, the vocal on this record. She... Take some liberties with Chuck's lyrics, you know? he's She's interpreting it in her own special way. This song sounds like the weight of the world. The prison cell is, you can lit- literally hear it shutting around these mm. people as they're, as they're making this music. A fantastic version of Black Steel from Tricky from 1995 on Sound
0: Opinions. I got a letter from the government the other day Opened it and read it, it said they were suckers They wanted me for the army or whatever,
3: Switch on, switch off. black steel tricky reinventing public enemy making it their own and really coming up with a voice for UK hip hop in uh, 1995 uh, Jim give us another one for best cover of all time well this is the best cover of all time Greg if I had to choose an ultimate the
2: best way for me to end the show in terms of this we're going to talk about the Patti Smith and Brian Ferry cover albums and the Joni Mitchell tribute album uh, in a little bit but this is, this is the one I mean this is the one you know I said of the Ramones a while back that if you don't like The Ramones, you don't like rock and roll, okay? If you don't like this song, this two-and-a-half-minute song, you don't like rock and roll because (laughs) everything, if we had to shoot into space for a future generation, centuries, millennia for now, to define what rock and roll is, it would be this song, okay? And the radical reinvention that it underwent is probably the most dramatic of anything we've played on this show. A man named Richard Berry wrote Louis Louis in 1955. He was influenced by two things this, uh, this kind of Jamaican music that he was hearing, it was in the air at the time, coming over, and also by Spanish music. He was covering a song called El Loco Cha Cha, which he rewrote, added a bit of a Jamaican lilt, and came up with this nice kind of Caribbean crooning song that he recorded in
0: 57. <laughs>
2: He uh, later had some hard times money-wise in 59. He sold the rights for this for $750. It is now, it has to be the most covered song of all time, right? There's not a band in the universe that hasn't played (laughs) Louie Louie at some point. If you only know one song on guitar, you know this song. So from this Caribbean Calypso thing, it is reinvented as a rock and roll song in the very early 60s. A lot of bands were doing this at the same time, taking this song and adding... A rock and roll beat completely changing it the one that became most famous uh, not necessarily even the first was the kingsman from the pacific northwest their version is just an absolute classic because the snarl the sneer this is the birth of punk rock these guys they're a mess they recorded this song in one hour for 52 dollars Okay and you you hear uh, famously Jack Eli, the singer, at the beginning of the uh, the second verse he comes in too early, and the drummer covers with a fill. they leave the mistake. It doesn't matter. He slurs his words. I think they're drunk is what you're saying. Jim. They may have been drunk, they may not have been drunk. The FBI famously opened an investigation because this made it to the top of the pop charts, and there was a rumor in America like the Mikey and the Pop rocks rumor, one of those famous rumors, right that these guys were actually singing very dirty words. They weren't. <laughs> (laughs) They were just slurring because they didn't really have the lyrics right and or they were drunk. But the FBI actually investigated this. There's a great book about this by rock critic Dave Marsh, an entire book about this one song. And it's a wonderful story, well worth reading. But to my ears of all the rock and roll covers, including Iggy Pops later, where he actually put in all the dirty lyrics people thought they heard but weren't really there, he fulfilled the FBI's dreams. This is, the, this is the one though You know what I mean Animal House claimed it as its own it, it, That's okay These original two and a half minutes Whatever became The Kingsman Who knows They went on to work at Jiffy Loop Doesn't matter They made the greatest rock and roll song of all time For these two and a half minutes They are the gods of the universe And certainly the masters of the cover as we know it man, that Farfisa, those drums, that sloppy vocal, that guitar solo. The Kingsman, Louie Louie, that is as good as rock and roll gets, Greg. If you disagree, if you agree, if you've got other choices for covers we overlooked, you can always uh, talk to us at the Sound Opinions message board. Soundopinions.org is the address.
3: Coming up next, Jim, on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to rate the records that gave us the idea for this feature in the first place. Uh, The new ones from Brian Ferry and Patty Smith, as well as the tribute album featuring the songs of Joni Mitchell. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What you're hearing now is Brian Ferry covering Neil Young's Like a Hurricane. Brian Ferry has made a virtual career out of covering the music of other artists, Um, and that is just one example. We're going to look at the new covers album by Brian Ferry, as well as a covers album from Patti Smith, and a tribute album to the songs of Joni Mitchell here in this segment. Let's look at Ferry first. In a way, Jim, he is a terrific example of what we've been talking about in this show. He is one of those artists who values what other people have written and reinterpreting those songs. In a lot of ways, he's a throwback to the pre rock and roll era when artists did this all the time great singers interpreted great songs written by other people
2: there's th- a little Tony Bennett a mm-hmm. little Frank
3: Sinatra a little Mel Torme a little bit of Brian the cabaret crooner yeah. he's o- and he's always you know owned up to that he loves that he brought that element into Roxy music in a way Roxy music was the ultimate in let's boy that's a great looking suit over there <laughs> yeah. let me try that on and see how that feels yeah and he does the same thing with a song He'll do everything from Billie Holiday to Bob Dylan. In fact, Bob Dylan was one of the artists he covered on his first solo album, which was composed entirely of cover songs in 1973. He released another album in that same year, 1973, which again was completely cover versions. In fact, he's released four albums entirely composed of cover versions uh, throughout his career, and now Dylan-esque... His latest cover's album is his fifth. Dylan-esque, as it says, it's Brian Ferry doing Bob Dylan. Eleven Bob Dylan songs. Let's play a track, Baby Let Me Follow You Down, as reinterpreted by Brian Ferry on Sound Opinions. Baby, let me follow
1: you down. Baby, let me follow you down.
2: That is the great Brian Ferry covering the equally great Bob Dylan, Baby Let Me Follow You Down. Greg Ferry on this album, uh, Dylan-esque, I don't think he takes the Dylan songs anywhere different or surprising. With one or two exceptions, the way Robin Trower, that longtime veteran uh, guitar player, a heavy metal guy, tears into All Along the Watchtower. Which of course you have to do, Hendrix having covered it, and Eno enhancing some of the. That was my obligatory Eno <laughs> reference. I'm I'm allowed because he's on this record. Who was of course a partner uh, with Ferry in Roxy Music. I was a little disappointed because look, pairing Brian Ferry with Bob Dylan, that's like you know chocolate and peanut butter, right? So yeah. It's as good as it gets, and I wasn't blown away by this album. It's a burn it as far as I'm concerned. But but you have to burn it if you care about this guy at all At least hear some of the tracks
3: Well he's a great interpretive singer as I said earlier I mean I loved his uh, 1993 covers album Taxi when he did songs like Amazing Grace And All Tomorrow's Parties He really made them his own On this one I think he sees Dylan as a pop songwriter I don't think Dylan ever envisioned himself as a pop songwriter But what Ferry is reveling in Is those melodies And he's sort of juicing it up with the tambourines And the backing vocals Just like Tom Thumb's blues is a dirge in Dylan's hands Here he, he turns it into a pop song But other otherwise you're right straight up versions of these songs he's really not radically straying from the original arrangement so it's a nice fairy record but it's sort of a holding piece we're sort of waiting for the next thing from this guy and i think while he was you know in a little bit of his downtime he recorded a bunch of dylan's songs yeah. in one week in the studio and this is the product of it it's a burn it record
2: all right so that's a burn it from both of us on the sound opinions rating scale of buy it burn it trash it the next one we want to get to is the cover album 12 by patty smith
0: on guns bring your friends it's fun to lose and to pretend she's overboard myself assured I know I know a dirty
2: that's certainly an intriguing version of Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, by Patti Smith. It's one of the standout tracks, good or bad, I'd vote bad, on the new album of covers by Patti Smith. It's interesting, to be sure, Peter Stamfel, legendary New York folky, is playing on that track, along with Sam Shepard, the great playwright who was a part of that folk scene and, and a friend of Smith's and worked with Smith on several things through the years. That doesn't make it good. Look, Patty Smith is another of my choices for the definitive cover artist of all time. On her debut album, she covered the Van Morrison Them song, Gloria. She claimed that as her own, but she took this great original, she took it somewhere new, she added the poetic spiel and the whole subtext that wasn't there, and she helped give birth to punk rock. There's nothing on that level on 12, although there are certainly some interesting things. Greg we've got to hand it to Patty for some surprising choices Some of them succeed I think Stevie Wonder's pastime Paradise And Greg Ullman's Midnight Rider Are both curious choices that that she actually uh, Does something interesting with There are some others which are pure disasters Everybody wants to rule the world by tears for fears And what's the one that you hate? Well,
3: I dislike her cover of uh, Gimme Shelter by The Stones. I, yeah, I just nothing, think that's, nothing good there. It's painful for me to hear because I'm a huge Patti Smith fan, as you know. I, I love her to death, but I think she just butchers some of the songs on this record. I, I find the choices somewhat predictable. None of the interpretations that she gave of these songs make me go, want to go back to the original and say, wow, she just blew that out of the water. It pains me to say this, but this is a trashy record. I can't ever wow. see myself... Listening to this record again.
2: Well, I see. I disagree. I like the Olman cover. I like the Stevie Wonder cover. I like two or three others. And she's Patty Smith. I, I'll burn it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale for that reason. But the vehemence of your trash it is shocking. <laughs>
3: Prince covering Joni Mitchell's A Case of You. It comes from a new tribute album to Joni Mitchell uh, called A Tribute to Joni Mitchell, basically. Artists such as uh, Sufjan Stevens, Bjork, Sarah McLaughlin, James Taylor, Katie Lang, Amy Lou Harris, Caitano Veloso all interpret Joni Mitchell songs Joni Mitchell one of the great songwriters to emerge from that LA scene of the 60s and also a very difficult artist to cover Mm. she hasn't come up with any new original studio material in about a decade and I think this is the her record company's way of sort of putting her music out there and saying look at this amazing artist but I have to say what's going on in this record is somewhat disappointing and I think the reason it's disappointing is that she's so difficult to cover she's got quirky phrasing She uses a lot of jazzy time signatures. Her voice is a brilliant multi-octave range, but she wavers between major and minor keys. Her songs are difficult to sing. And a lot of these artists just aren't, frankly, they're not up to it. <laughs> they're not good enough to cover Joni Mitchell's songs, frankly. Or at least they don't have a way in to covering Joni Mitchell's songs. I'm not hearing anything on here that's really illuminating the greatness of Joni Mitchell, with a few exceptions. I agree, Greg. Part of the problem here is that
2: such Records put out this tribute, and Nonesuch is uh, going to a lot of the people that are on its label. The choices are predictable. I wish there were more choices that are surprising, like Prince, like Caetano Veloso, like Bjorn. Because I, you know, I've interviewed burly, 350-pound, tattooed, hairy, heavy metal guys, and snotty, 15-year-old punk rock kids, and both of them are like, the, a tear comes in their eyes and says, yeah, my mom played Joni Mitchell for me. <laughs> you know, I, The weirdest people love Joni Mitchell, and they hear a depth in her music. I would have liked to have heard some unusual choices trying to shine a spotlight on, on the things that make Mitchell's music magical. Instead, we have, you know, like a made-for-the-coffee-house kind of predictable, for the most part, compilation. Still, on a buy-it-burn-it-trash-it scale, because I like that Prince song, I like the Bjork song, I like like the Catano song I think it's a burn it
3: yeah there are a few nice versions on here Catano I think steals the record with his version of Dreamland Prince love that as well and Amy Lou Harris does a nice job with the Magdalene laundries but otherwise I think the versions are, are kind of disappointing so I'm going to have to give it a burn it as well
2: man it is fun talking about covers Mr. Cott we could do this all year what do we have coming up next week
3: Jim, you're going to love next week's show because uh, the, the band we have on next week is going to cover an artist that you love dearly. Uh, oh, just, don't give it away. I'm not, but the artists we're going to have on next week, the Decemberists, we're going to have him in for a live performance and an interview, and it's going to be great. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason
2: Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer and fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatia, who was rumored to have been uh, one of the Kingsmen playing accordion. I don't think
3: they let him in the studio. Though. <laughs> the sloppy drunk guy was Tori Malatia? Are you kidding me? In case you've missed any of our recent shows, here are some of the records we've reviewed on Sound Opinions.
2: That is the one and only Rush. From the 18th album of their long and storied career, Snakes and Arrows, Neil Peart, the uh, lyricist, philosopher, drummer, just to watch him play is like watching what it must have been like when god created the grand canyon or oh my something god. i mean it's like guys a force of nature Give me a break
3: I'm feeling the Grand Canyon being created as I listen to that song, Jen. You know what I'm saying? Um, the yeah. river's cutting through and this, this work of majesty and glory. Right with you there. Jim, you and I have debated this band for many years, and I have to say, I think they are returning to what they do best. You've got Neil Peart. He is a massive drummer. I, I hear more calculus and geometry in his drumming than the Grand Canyon Parting. And then you have Peart's lyrics, which are part of the reason I don't like it. Oh, I couldn't more. This disagree is a more. super sleek sound that they have. No. Uh, they write a lot of melodies, but it Leaves me at arm's distance. It's very cool and precise. Oh no, I couldn't disagree and cold. more. I I have a real problem warming up to this record. I, I
2: think that the, the melodies are stronger than anything they've given us. Arguably, since those but, big, but big big but hits, the Tom Sawyer Where's and the Bar- passion? Yeah. Hey, I was not predisposed to like this album. I will admit there is an element of thirteen-year-old geek boy in my basement playing along <laughs> to Twenty One Twelve. All right, but but I can admit if it's an embarrassment, this record really surprised me. This is a buy-it
3: album, Snakes and Arrows by Rush. Absolutely. They had some nice albums, late 70s, early 80s But I'll tell you, there's a few tracks on here that I like But other than that, Jim, not much here that, I, that I'd go back to So I'd say it's about a four-song, five-song EP that I would burn You're just mean
0: you
3: on, on Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic So now it's time to hear what you have to say
4: Hi, this is Mike calling from Elmhurst, Illinois Um, Just wanted to comment on the Rush review, specifically on uh, the link made between Rush and heavy metal. Um, Rush is a good band. Rush is a good rock band. Rush is not a heavy metal band. To insinuate that Neil Peart can carve out the Grand Canyon with pure power, no, he's an excellent drummer. But if you want a drummer capable of pure power along the lines of creating natural phenomenon,
2: you need to look no further than Vinnie Paul, uh, formerly of Pantera and Damage
5: Plan. What can I say? The man is a machine and uh, doesn't get any more powerful than that. Inflammation. summation, Vinnie Paul, power, Neil Peart, not so much. Rush, great band, not heavy metal. Absolutely not. Thanks a lot. Bye.
0: Oh, Wild like a zoo, and that's the way I like it, baby. Crazy me and you, making love like we was just too heated at the most. Baby, come and lay with me in my jungle.
5: Hi, I'm Anita from upstate New York, and I have to agree with Jim that R. Kelly is an abomination <laughs> as a role model for the young people who listen to his music. However, I I do agree with Greg that if we we hold every artist to stringent moral criteria, there would be a lot of great music missing from our shelves. You know, you mentioned James Brown and Jerry Lee Lewis, and I don't think you can really compare I Believe I Can Fly to I Feel Good by James Brown, but I think that critics have to let the people decide for themselves whether or not they want to buy music made by an accused criminal. When I see a Picasso painting, I don't really want to think of every misogynistic or racist thing that he said or did. I just want to enjoy a beautiful work of art. But by hearing music by artists who are morally bankrupt or socially despicable, the listener, you know, we're being forced into an ethical dilemma, which, in my opinion, should really have no place in pop music. And I blame the record labels for promoting artists who are shady. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.